0: All right, well, let's go ahead and open up those Bibles to Exodus chapter 2. It's page 45 in a blue pew Bible. We would encourage you to follow along with us there. So if you were to wake up one day and say, I want to take a systematic theology class. Any takers? Um, you would come across in this deep dive into the study of, of God and then and the Bible, you'd come across a couple of kind of big words that maybe you don't hear Every day, words like compatibilism and providence, and it's an important word because compatibilism—it's this—it it's this, um, conveys this biblical view that that God's providence, His sovereignty over all things, His ability to control all things at all times, um, is compatible with human choices. It's compatible with human responsibility. God control all the time. And you and I, men and women, we are free to make choice. We are, our choices have real significance, both good and bad. And compatibilism says both those things are true. One does not negate the other. And the Bible is filled with examples of this, including our passage this morning. But it's probably seen most visibly, most famously at the cross. Think about the cross where Jesus died. It was God's providential plan to redeem sinners at the cross. And it was the evil plan of religious leaders to kill Jesus because he was a threat to their power. That's compatibilism. And, and, and we know those men and, and women who were involved in that would have to one day give an account for that. But bottom line, God is sovereign. Men and women are responsible. That's compatibilism. And if that makes your head spin a little bit, if you're like, um, Pastor, we like like an easing into the sermon with the introduction. We're already swimming in the deep end. um, Maybe that is confusing at first, especially if you're new to the Bible, to theology. Um, But this morning, we're going to see, in very dramatic fashion, uh, a story where men and women are going to make real choices with real significance. And yet, through it all, under it all, over it all, God's providence is going to shine this morning, and my hope is that if you are confused now, that by the end, you will see that God's providence is, I think, the most comforting and relevant trait of God that impacts your day-to-day life. This isn't just for the textbooks. This isn't just for discussion. That God's providence, rightly seen, understood, believed in, will be the most comforting thing you face and feel day-to-day in your life. Um, we are starting chapter two of Exodus this morning. We have finished chapter one. If some of you are doing the math, you're like two weeks a chapter. what do we? How long? Uh, we will begin to pick up the pace here. But uh, to this point, it's simple. As, the story has been pretty simple. Uh, the Hebrew family, a family of about seventy, have taken refuge down in Egypt with their brother Joseph. The generations have passed. This family of seventy has now turned into a small nation. And a new pharaoh over Egypt comes into power and he takes a look around at a lot of foreigners in his land, in his best land, and he's threatened by them. His own control, his own power, he feels threatened, so he acts upon it. He had a short-term plan to enslave them, and it didn't work. They grew all the more. So he goes to a long-term plan to destroy them, and he does it by having midwives do the dirty work. Goes to the midwives, says, hey... A Hebrew woman has a baby. Boy, kill him. Girl, let him live. Let's weaken their army while keep our slave base. Kill the boys. Keep the girls. That plan did not work because the midwives were defiant in not listening to that decree. And so at the very end of chapter 1, Pharaoh goes completely off the rails and we're going to cover chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 but I want to start with that final verse of chapter 1 to be reminded of what this new policy is that he has starting at 122 then pharaoh commanded all his people every son that is born to the hebrews you shall cast into the nile but you shall let every daughter live now a man from the house of levi went and took as his wife a levite woman the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying she took pity on him and said this is one of the hebrews children then his sister said to pharaoh's daughter shall i go and call you a nurse from the hebrew women to nurse the child for you and pharaoh's daughter said to her go so the woman went and called the child's mother And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Well, Pharaoh's evil heart is now exposed For everyone to see. What began in the shadows, let's keep this a little bit on the down low. Let's have the midwives do it. When that plan failed, he now just goes full out, off the rails, public declaration. He gives authority to all people, all Egyptians. Think about this. All Egyptians. And commands them to dispose of Hebrew boys whenever they come across one. Every son that is born you shall cast into the Nile River. I know this is a familiar story for us, and we just kind of like, yeah, that's what happens in the story. Can you just stop? Like, can you fathom that? No, like, we can't. Like, we, we cannot fathom that. Thankfully, we really can't. But like, my goodness, every person has the authority to kill your child. I imagine, I, I don't know, I'm just reading into this, Like, most parents, of, I'd hope it would be like, uh, nope. Not going to happen. You're going to have to kill me if you're going to get to my baby. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure that happened a lot. I'm sure this was just complete anarchy after this policy goes into place. Like, day one of this? Are you kidding me? And it's a policy of oppression that is as evil as you can get. Can you think of a more evil policy to put on people? Giving the general population authority to murder babies. And this, as an aside, is one reason amongst many that I'm thankful to be a Christian who submits to a sovereign God and submits to his word. Because you know why? We have the capability to call evil evil. That The Bible is clear in its stories and in its commands that Pharaoh is an evil man carrying out an evil policy. And our worldview as Christians provides a foundation for us to see that, to read that and say that is evil. And you might be sitting here and go like, okay, that's not that big of a statement. Of course it's evil. But, but what I'm saying is that if you try to operate your life without a sovereign God, without a firm foundation, who providentially rules over his creation, hear me, you lose the foundation to call evil, evil. So compare this to modern day, the, whatever you want to call the kind of main cultural doctrine of our day individualism, secularism, humanism, um, the, the, the view that gets described like this, there is no absolute truth. There is no God that we need to submit to, that we are our own authority. You decide your truth for you and find it within. And I will find my truth for me. And you be faithful to your truth and I'll be faithful to my truth. If you just take pulse of our culture, that's the dominant and most the fastest-growing worldview in America today. It could even include spiritual things, but you're not tied down by any means. I'm free to decide for me. You're free to decide for you. There are a lot of issues with that. But in context to this point, that worldview has no foundation to call evil evil. Because what if I say to you, well, Pharaoh is just being true to himself, he found his truth from within. He's protecting his own people. He's acting upon his truth to oppose others in order to maintain his power and control. And somebody who would consider himself today like a universalist or a humanist or whatever word they want to throw in there would say, No, that is clearly wrong. You cannot do that. But what ground do they have to stay on to call that evil? That is his truth and not your truth. And again, you say, No, that's just wrong. And the simple fact is just how. Can you explain how? It's almost like in that moment, somebody who does not want to submit to a sovereign God wants some kind of objective source to agree with that being evil. And my just claim, the reason why I'm sharing this is because we have people all around us that we love, that we work with, that we live around, that we care for a lot, that operate their lives out of this modern view. And it's a view that actually cares a lot about human rights, cares a lot about social justice but when you really break it down they do not have the foundational support for their own desires of a violent oppression against people groups which brings me back to christianity i'm grateful to be a christian because i serve a providential god who has the authority to see evil and call it out as evil and a step further to know that all we do consider evil is not powerful enough to overcome a providential God. And he chooses to work in space and in time and in human history to bring about deliverance for his people, which brings us to the story of the famous birth, probably the second most famous birth account in the Bible. And he accomplishes it through three very ordinary women. This is a sovereign God, carries out his purposes through three ordinary women. I want to look at each of these Women, one by one. Number one, a courageous mother. Chapter 2 starts with, quote, a man. But then we never hear about that man again. This man is involved only in so much as that he played a part in marrying a woman. And played a part in this woman becoming a mother. But even in that detail, there's a couple things. We're told that they're in the lineage of Levi. Levi is one of the 12 tribes of the Hebrew people, named after the 12 sons of Jacob that start the book of Exodus, and so they're careful, intentional, generations later, to marry within their tribe, probably due to inheritance reasons, but how about this? Just them getting married was an act of defiance, wasn't it? After this decree takes place, just the fact that they got married and then proceed to consummate the marriage and get pregnant, and a baby is born, and it's a boy. I don't know how often you do this if you put yourself in the Bible story and you go, what would I do? Put yourself in this couple's shoes. Decree goes out. All Egyptians have authority to kill your child. You have a baby. It's a boy. What would you do? This boy could be murdered without any justice or penalty. And all we read is that the mother sees the child and saw that he was a fine child. If you grew up with the King James Bible, you might remember that this verse says that he was a goodly child. And the reason is because it's the same Hebrew root word as seen seen in Genesis 1.31 when God created the world and, quote, saw everything he has made and, behold, it was very good. Same root word. It's a goodly child. Showing us and connecting us that every birth, every birth, every baby in the womb, out of the womb, is providentially designed by God. And he saw it was good. He's in it all. He's over it all. And this mother, seeing the child was good because he was designed by God, is able to hide them for three months. Hide him for three months. Now, I'm biased here. But this feels like the biggest miracle in the book of Exodus to me. <laughs> Exodus is going to roll out the miracles, man. The parting of the Red Seas, cool. Keeping a baby quiet for three months, amazing. <laughs> like a divine work of God. Like, like the newborn cute cry, it lasts like three hours, right? We are like, oh, that's so cute. And then it's just sheer volume. And I remember with all, each of the four of our kids, at one point looking over them being like, How does such a loud sound (laughs) come from such a small body? (laughs) And this woman made it, by God's grace, for sure, three months. And yet, in all seriousness, I can't imagine the stress in those three months. I wonder if there are any close calls. You know, it's one thing to think as you... Have a crying newborn, can you just please fall asleep so we can all go to sleep? It's another thing to say, can you please just stop crying so we can all live? But here's what we're seeing. The defiant strength of a courageous mother, hear me, in the act of being a mother. You know, it's interesting in our day today in 2020, uh, you often see women in our culture get celebrated for all these kind of impressive and and well-deserved, notable things, and then you'll often hear, oh, and by the way, they're also a mother. You hear that? It's like, you know, they do all these really cool things, and they're a mother. And here we see a mother being celebrated in the very work of motherhood, to nurse, to care for, to rock to sleep in defiance to a government. And in this way, she aligns herself with the courageous midwives we saw from Exodus chapter one, Shipra and Puah, who feared God more than they feared man and who would not oppose God's law just because uh, an overreaching tyrant told them to. And and so a question kind of comes to the surface, whether you're a man or a woman in here, is how did she do it? Like, I understand what she did, but how did she pull this off? How is it possible to have that level of courage? Hebrews 11 is a well-known chapter in the New Testament. And the whole chapter recounts the courage and Old Testament heroes from the Old Testament. And you know who appears on the list? Let me read for you. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews 11:23. 23. By faith... Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, look, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. How did she do it? And her husband gets a little credit in here too, to the author of Hebrews. How? By faith. Because of their faith in the Lord, they were not afraid of the king. And Hebrews 11 begins by defining faith. Hebrews 11, 1, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not the only gift that reconciles us to God. It, it certainly is that, but it's also the ongoing fuel you and I need in life to do the hard things that God has us to do, to stay on the path of obedience regardless of the obstacles in front of us. And in our lives, We are constantly coming up against the hard things. And you know what's interesting? Sometimes it's hard to stay, and you need faith to stay and to keep. And other times you need faith to move and to not stay any longer. But both need to be discerned through the lens of faith. And faith is believing in God more than we believe in the fear in front of us. It's believing in God more than we believe the fear that's right in front of us, even when you don't see. And you know, oftentimes I'll have to say in a sermon, at this point, think in your own life. Here, I don't even need to do that, because you're already thinking about it, because we all have those things that we know are driving our fear, that are controlling us, that are steering us, that are serving as obstacles to us. And I can't say in your life, you know what, you got to go, or I can't say, you know what, you got to stay. I'm gonna say we need to have faith in God, and I wanna pour gas on that fire. That you can trust Him, and you can trust His Word, and you can keep the faith and do what's right, even when it's hard. But back to our courageous mother here, I'm not done with her yet. By faith, she, again, loves the baby enough to keep him. Would you keep him? And then at three months old, hear me, this is important, by faith, she loves Him enough to let him go it took faith to put this three-month-old child into a basket into the river this was not a moment of weakness that she had she didn't wake up and her fear didn't overtake her so she put him in the river she knew it was the best thing for the child and she loved him enough to let him go think about our world today It takes faith and courage to have a child for many mothers to keep the child in the womb, especially the ones where pregnancy is unexpected or maybe not wanted. But hear me, it takes the same faith and the same courage to put up a child for adoption instead of to keep. It often takes the same faith to entrust the baby to the Lord. And we often think, I had to be... I was kind of repenting of this in my own life that we often think of women who put their children up for adoption that they probably just didn't like children. They were probably just irresponsible and lazy. And how wrong that could be. How many women put their child up for adoption because they think they love that child enough that they think it's the best thing for them. And we should celebrate that. And the church... If we're going to push for women to not terminate pregnancies, talked about that last week, and, and we're going to encourage them to go forward with pregnancies and to have the children, we should be unbelievably supportive of both mother and child after they're born. You know where the church could go wrong? We can be more pro-birth than we are pro-life. We should be unbelievably supported in the trenches with them, whether they want to keep the child or entrust it to the Lord in another family in adoption. And support is pray for, absolutely, but support is come alongside. And maybe that also means being active in foster care, active in adoption, and active in helping people in the church who would adopt but can't afford to. It's not cheap. Maybe a role we can play is helping to fund and support one another in this church in the work of fostering and adopting. There's a lot of ways and I think the Lord is looking down on us in these last two weeks of these passages we're coming across of and going, maybe it's time to get to work. Maybe. This baby had a courageous mother. I gotta go fast. Number two, she, the baby had a mature sister. So here's where we need to put a couple things together. It seems that there was a plan in place by the family upon pa- placing this baby in the river. right? The plans of man, strategizing vision, a plan of man is not contrary to faith. We are called to plan. We are called to live strategically and then entrust those plans to the Lord, who's ultimately the one who's going to dictate and work through them. Uh, Last summer, if you were here, we preached through the book of Proverbs, and we did a whole week on the wisdom of planning. Do you remember that? The the Bible says a lot about planning and and how it's compatible. Again, there's that word compatible with the sovereignty of God. A couple verses just... um, I can't remember if they're on the screen or not, but they're short. Proverbs sixteen three: Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Proverbs sixteen nine: The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Strong faith does not negate planning; it establishes it. And this baby's family let him go in the river by faith, and it was faith with a plan. Plan does not mean guarantee. Once that baby was in that basket, out of the arms of her mom, anything could have happened. She's entrusting this to the Lord by faith, but she had a plan, I think. And the plan begins with the basket itself. We're told that it's not just a basket. It's made of bulrushes and bitumen and pitch. Maybe some of you guys are smart who are going to go to the service project on February 1st. You know what those words mean. Me, nothing. <laughs> that meant nothing to me. All right, I had to go look it up. But in studying that... What I found fascinating, the literal Hebrew word for basket was used one other time in the Old Testament. Do you know where it was used to describe Noah's Ark? Moses writing Genesis and Exodus, giving a little intertextual hint that God saved him as a baby in the same way he saved Noah. Kept them from drowning in order to bring life and salvation to others. And Moses is now in the Nile in this miniature ark that's waterproof, that's able to float, that is porous enough so the baby could breathe, and God is all over this. And it's strategically put by the reeds on a riverbank, assuming it's not a rough part of the river that's going to take this and uh, run with it. Um, And then they send Big Sister to track the basket. Stay a distance, but do not get your eyes off that basket. I'd be interested to know how old the sister was. We'll eventually learn her name later in the series. But at this point, was she four or five? Was she ten? Maybe she was a teenager. We don't know, but when another woman sees the basket, opens it up, which we'll talk about in a moment, in comes Big Sister, who does not reveal herself to the woman, does not reveal herself as Big Sister, But now she engages in a mature act of defiance herself. Just like her mom. Just like Shipra and Pua. She speaks confidently. She speaks clearly. And I'm sure her heart was beating out of her chest. Can you imagine? A child. And she knew she was a critical part of the plan. It was on her shoulders. And this girl has got ice in her veins, man. And she delivers. Hey, excuse me. You want me to call a nurse for you? I can go find maybe a Hebrew woman who can nurse this child for you. Side note, Hebrews and Egyptians did not speak the same language. So this older sister was either bilingual or she memorized this line for this moment. In either case, it was impressive. And God's working providentially through the ordinary means of a young girl. It reminds me of a story of my grandfather's. Some of you know that my grandparents served as missionaries with African Inland Mission in Congo and Kenya for 50 years. And my grandpa has all of these stories, and we would literally just sit around and listen to him, and he passed away last spring. But a mindful cousin of mine named Ashley had the presence of mind to record all of his stories on the mission field before he passed away. I want to read you an excerpt from one here. This is 1961. Follow along. After a year's furlough, we were assigned back to Congo, and we were there only about two to three months when the Congo got their independence, and there was a forecast that there was going to be a lot of political unrest. And so the leaders of the mission suggested that we evacuate from the country. Ed Shewitt had a shortwave radio that he was monitoring, and the U.S. Embassy in Uganda contacted him and said they had information that warranted an evacuation of all the children from Congo, and women and other missionaries they would strongly urge to leave, and said that the next morning there would be two truckloads of United Nations soldiers arriving to escort us safely out of the Congo. Sure enough two truckloads of soldiers arrived and we had 33 vehicles that we all went in convoy headed for the Uganda border. When we got to the border, just three miles from where we would go through customs out of the Congo, the Congolese army stopped us because they were stationed there. We were all very apprehensive about what might happen, and the United Nations soldiers tried to talk with the Congolese army and explain to them that we were Americans and we were leaving the Congo. But what they didn't know, and we didn't know, was that Patrice Lumamba had just been murdered. He was to be the new first president of Congo. And the U.S. was going to be initially blamed for his death. They took all of us men and put us in jail and let the women and children stay with the vehicles. We were all trying to look through the bars of the jail out into the parking lot to see what was happening. And then we see one of the girls, Sandra McFall, 12 years old, had thrown a hula hoop into the back of one of the pickup trucks. She got that hula hoop out of the vehicle and was playing with it. Well, the soldiers had never seen this, and they were walking around her trying to see where the motor was that kept this thing going. And she finally invited one of the soldiers to try it. Well, he wasn't too successful at first, but after a while, one of the soldiers was able to imitate what she was doing, and he was able to get that hula hoop going, and he was so tickled, that was my grandpa's word, he was so tickled, all laughing and enjoying this, and then every soldier had to take his turn. This took a long time to go around, all the soldiers, and they were all trying it. Some of them were more successful than others, but finally, it just broke the tension a bit. And finally, the head of the army said, Okay, we just have to make sure you don't have any gold in your trucks. Finally, at 3 a.m., they had finished completing searching all of the 33 vehicles and were released. I truly believe we got out of the Congo on the end of a hula hoop of a 12-year-old girl. Listen to this, because after Sandra had taught these people how to use the hula hoop, she really gave those soldiers a tongue lashing of how bad they were. (laughs) That these men were doctors and nurses and teachers, and they were here in the Congo to teach them the word of God. And here you are, putting them in jail and making life so miserable for these missionaries that have been here to help. And they were so embarrassed that this little girl would speak so harshly to them. But you know, the Lord used Sandra, really, I feel, to release us from the Congo. And when we got out of that area between Congo and Uganda, we stopped at 3.30 in the morning, and we all sang the Hallelujah Chorus about 130 of us missionaries and missionary children. Think about what would have happened... If they stayed in jail long enough for news to come that their president has just been murdered by what they thought to be Americans, and then to have all these American men in their midst. My mom was five years old during this evacuation. How personally the boldness of a 12-year-old girl that I've never met has had an impact on my family and anything that comes from that. So I say all that to say this, a word to younger students here, maybe you're in elementary school, you didn't go downstairs, certainly middle schoolers and high schoolers, perhaps this mature sister can serve as a model for you, that God chooses to use the vital contribution of young people in his saving work. Maybe you feel justified or unjustified that adults kind of write you off. You're just too immature. Maybe when you're older, you can serve God. Maybe you have doubts about yourself that sound like that. I mean, what can I do? I'm only a sixth grader, or I'm only a tenth grader, or whatever. How can I contribute way more than you realize? And it doesn't have to be in big ways that make you go viral. That's not success in God's eyes. God can and will use ordinary, faithful obedience to make a big impact. All right, i got to fly. Number three compassionate guardian. We see courageous mother, mature sister, now compassionate guardian. It's the last woman in this story who happens to be Pharaoh's daughter. It's unclear whether the baby's mother targeted Pharaoh's daughter. Maybe it's known that she goes down by the reeds in the river to wash. I often, as a kid, probably because of movies, have shown me this, that this basket was like floating down the river for miles, right, you have that in your mind. In the text, she probably put it by the reeds because she knew it would stay by the reeds, And she knew that this woman comes down to bathe by the reeds. It's kind of like if somebody today were to drop a baby off at a hospital or a doorstep of a church. But she comes. She has her servant open the basket. She looks inside and she sees a three-month-old baby crying. And this is the turning point of the passage. Verse 6, she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. She had Compassion. And she knows the edict her own father put over all the people. Hebrew boys, throw into the Nile. This seems like a pretty easy one. He's already in the Nile. And isn't it telling that Pharaoh's own daughter defies his command? You see, there's no more powerful emotion you can have than compassion. Compassion moves you to do something, moves you to act. And while we don't know if she always thought this edict by her dad was wrong or if it was the moment she set eyes on a crying three-month-old baby where she decided to change her mind. Enter the sister who offers to find a Hebrew woman to nurse this child. And the climactic moment is when Pharaoh's daughter says one word, go. Off goes sister, in comes mother. This daughter... Um, sorry this mother now nurses the child again for wages she's getting paid for it until he's presumably I don't know three four five six years old somewhere in there and then the mother once again in love loves him enough to let him go and trust him back to the pharaoh's daughter and now not only did she defy her father's command to not kill the child she's bringing him home into the household and saying now he's a part of our family And then we read that she named him Moses, for she drew him out of the water. I always, when I finished writing this sermon, I kind of sat back in my chair and I just couldn't help just just worship and pray and just think to myself man, how courageous is Moses' mother? How mature is his sister? How compassionate is his now adoptive mother? But you know the question that I got to the very end, beneath all those questions, how good is our God? You trace this whole story through and just go, who designed that? It's like when you watch a great movie and you consider the acting and the plots and the twists and the turns and you get to the end of the movie, you're like, that was just a great movie. And then it dawns on you, somebody wrote that. Somebody filmed that and directed that. It's kind of like that, but it's a true story. And all out of all of that comes a chosen deliverer, a deliverer who is designed and orchestrated by God, yet it occurs through the normal happenings of everyday life like birth and child care. And she named him Moses. And while it's the second most known birth story in the Bible, we know that the most well-known birth story isn't really all that much different There was a teenage girl who was mature enough to obey the word of the Lord. There was a couple who journeyed to Bethlehem because of an edict from a leader to take a census. There was an unassuming beginning with a birth in a manger. There was an evacuation to Egypt of all places where this baby would become a child in his first couple of years. It's a birth rooted in history that included ordinary people who were faithful And out of it comes a chosen deliverer who was born that would save God's people from slavery and bring them to the promised land of salvation, a deliverer who would show courage, maturity, and compassion. It was a deliverer, and they named him Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, how it puts on such strong display the power of faith, Father, I pray this passage would lead us to worship you, Lord, to make much of you. And Lord, I pray it would also infuse in us the courage and faith and compassion we need in this world. Lord, there are hundreds of stories in this room of a need for faith to overcome fear. I pray that you would give us the grace to latch on to that, Lord, to trust you even when things are unseen, and Lord, let this church be a light for all to see that there is a sovereign God, that he is in control of all things, and he does choose to use us, ordinary men and women, to carry out his purposes. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.